The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening, good evening everyone, and hello, hello from Merrick, Long Island, New York, Sports Talk New York. We're back on the air, it's a Sunday night, Bill Donahue taking you through the first hour. It's the 26th day of September 2021, fall, peeking right around that corner, folks. And engineer Brian Graves is with us across the way. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight. Leading off, we'll talk to the NFL columnist for Newsday. Bob Glauber, who has a new book out with Keyshawn Johnson called The Forgotten First. It's about the breaking of the color barrier in the NFL. Uh, a, a great topic, one that needs to be told, and this book does a great job with that. In the number two slot, we'll welcome in the former goaltender for the New York Islanders, Chico Rush. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy Sports Talk New York tonight on GBB. As always, some great sports memories coming up ahead tonight, and uh, I hope you enjoy them. As always, we'll talk a little bit about social media now. I invite you to follow us on Facebook. We're out there, WGBB Sports Talk New York. You'll find so much information that you'll you'll really enjoy. Give it a look, then give us, give us a like. Uh, also, Twitter. We use Twitter a lot. We're out there. It's WGBB Sports Talk, and you can also follow me on Twitter, at B. Donahue WGBB. And if you miss a show, don't worry, because they're all archived down on the website, and you can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest is the NFL columnist for Newsday, covering the NFL since 1985. He was selected for the 2021 Career Achievement Award by the Professional Football Writers of America for long and distinguished service to pro football through coverage. He has a new book out written with the great Keyshawn Johnson. It's called The Forgotten First, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Mar- Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and the breaking of the NFL color barrier. It's great to welcome to the show tonight Bob Glauber. Bob, good evening. Hey, good evening. Thank you for having me. No worries. Glad to have you aboard, Bob. Now, I, j- I just want to ask you, what was the road you traveled that led to Newsday? Give us a little story on, on how you got there. Well, I started um, my newspaper career at the Gannett Westchester Papers back, believe it or not, in the late 1970s. Wow. Yeah. Uh, writing part-time and then covering high school sports. And then I got a chance to start covering football in 1985. Covered the Giants and the great Bill Parcells and LT and Phil Sims teams. And then uh, in '89 went to Newsday. Nice. Okay. Great. Great little path that you followed there. Yeah. And uh, yeah, you, you certainly got there, and you're doing what you love, and that's important. Now, how did you and Keyshawn get together for this project, and who developed the concept, really? Well, I I was thinking about the concept, and I went to Keyshawn about a little less than a year and a half ago. Now, I I've known Keyshawn his entire career, uh, with you know starting with the Jets. Uh, met him even before he was drafted. You know, always got along with him and always found him to be a very compelling um, figure to, to write about. But in the last couple of years, um, I'd been thinking about this. And, you know, I'm, I'm a journalist, so I'm naturally curious about a lot of stuff. And um, I just felt that, I'm like, you know, 
NFL is a very diverse um, sport as far as its players. And even in my time covering the league since 85, it's gotten more diverse. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I go, like, how do you, what if I go further back? You know, what about the time? You know, I'm thinking about baseball. Like, oh, Jackie, everyone knows Jackie Robinson's first African American to break the color barrier right. in baseball. And I'm thinking, well, who, who is it in football? And why don't I know it? Right. So I'm literally in the Giants locker room one day Googling, um, first African American football player, NFL player. And it goes back to, it says Kenny Washington. Now he wasn't he he wasn't the first black player to play in in the NFL. It was um, you know there were uh, there were a few black players back in the twenties when the league started, including Paul Robeson, right, um, the, yeah. the great opera singer, and uh, and Fritz Pollard, of course, who's now in the Hall of Fame. But but I found out that there was a ban on black players for twelve years, from nineteen thirty four to forty five. And then Kenny Washington was the first to sign, to basically to reintegrate the NFL in 46. And that was also the same year that Woody Strode played with him, with the Rams. And then Marion Motley and Bill Willis signed with the Cleveland Browns. It was a different league, but the Browns ended up in the NFL a couple of years later. So I'm like, you know, my professional job is to cover football, and I don't know this stuff. So I've got to believe that a lot of people don't. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Keyshawn and I talked for literally two minutes about this. Um, he, he asked for some information about it. He grew up in Los Angeles, played high school ball no more than 10 miles from Kenny Washington and Woody Strode, where they played in high school, and realized that he, he too, wanted to know about this. And so we, we said, hey, let's, let's, let's do this. What do you say? And he said, let's, let's do it. And we dove right in. Interesting. Now, how did you uh, come upon the four guys? Just mention their names to the folks and uh, how you decided to to use all four of those. Well, because, you know, Kenny Washington was the first um, African-American to to re-break the color barrier, if you will, Mm -hmm. in pro football. And then Woody Strode played that season in Los Angeles. So those were the only two black players in that first year of, uh, you know, in, in 1946. And then it was the same year that Marion Motley and Bill Willis signed with the Cleveland Browns of the All-American Football Conference. So it was basically revolving around those four and that first season, but also looking at their lives in, a, in their entirety and also um, kind of including more modern stuff about how their struggles uh, are, are sort of mirrored in, in today's NFL at a different level. Um, and, and just going into things that are related to today's game to kind of bring it forward because there are many, many threads from their time back in 1946 that, that literally carry through to today. And, and we think that, you know, we kind of found a way to, um, point that out and, and, and bring to light, you know, how those things carry forward to literally to today's game. Right. Uh, the book folks, it, uh, really depicts the challenges that these guys had to overcome, like Jackie Robinson did, to help impact um, the future generations of NFL ball players, And they really changed the league forever. And it just so happens that this year marks the 75th anniversary of that first season that the, the guys were in the league. And it's just a fitting reminder of how far, as Bob mentioned, the NFL has come in creating a diverse world. And uh, 
one of the most diverse landscapes in sports is is in the NFL. And what I'd like you to do now, Bob, is uh, there's a story in the book about the nothing nothing game. People may not have heard of this. It's it's interesting. It was UCLA versus Southern Cal, and I believe it was at the. Uh, oh, I can't think of it now. That was at the Coliseum. That's it, Bob. Yeah, you took the Memorial Coliseum. (laughs) Looking for that. Now, fill the folks in a little bit on that game and and how it featured Kenny Washington. Well, believe it or not, we started out the book with a snippet from that game. And Mm -hmm. really, sort of like a game story from that game. It's 1939, and USC is already established as a college football powerhouse. Dominates the Southern California landscape. And UCLA is always the you know, the, the weak second um, sibling. And, uh, you know, they, they always played second fiddle to USC. But this particular year, um, Jackie Robinson joined the US, the UCLA team, along with Kenny Washington and Woody Strode. And so we start out with that 1939 matchup. It's the final game of the season, and a Rose Bowl berth is on the line. So essentially a chance to win the national championship. And 103,000 people show up at the L.A. Coliseum mm-hmm. for this titanic matchup. Now, back in those days, you know, it was much more of a running game. Um, but, but Kenny Washington was, he was a halfback in the single-wing offense, and he played, uh, he basically ran the ball and passed the ball just in that formation. It's kind of a funky thing that essentially the, the Wildcat is, is a little bit of a rendition of that. Mm-hmm. So it was a, a back and forth game, ended with a, a score in a scoreless tie, which back then was, you know, it was fairly common to have tie games and they were low scoring games, but 0-0 was certainly unusual, but it was one of the most exciting games really in college football history. And toward the end of that game, uh, Babe Horrell, Horrell is the, the coach of UCLA and he takes Kenny Washington off the field when the, when the game is, it, he realizes it's going to end in, in a 0-0 tie. He takes Kenny Washington off the field with less than a minute to go. And all of a sudden, the, the crowd just stands and hollers and screams and, and gives Kenny Washington this phenomenal ovation, uh, which Woody Stroh described as it's like the, the, the Pope came out of the Vatican. Yeah. It was just so emotional and, and powerful. And it, it just kind of points to fact that man this this guy was the most dominant player in college football that year and um he had this phenomenal career that that ended you know with this game uh and and he he walked off to cheers from both usc and ucla fans and it was incredible and and then we contrast that with that that same day in milwaukee is the nfl draft and under different circumstances, Kenny Washington is like almost a no-brainer as the number one overall pick. If black people were allowed in the NFL, he'd have been the number one overall pick in that draft. But they had a 22-round draft, over 200 players drafted, and Kenny Washington's name was not called, uh, nor was the name of any other black player in the country. And it was a fitting contrast to kind of really point out just how um, – how unwanted black players were in the National Football League. You think of today, you know, mm-hmm. most of the stars in, in, in the modern NFL, or at least half, if not most, are, are black players. But back then, they, they were not allowed and not wanted. And it took until 1946, 
uh, that first year when Kenny Washington didn't sign with the Rams to to reintegrate football, and that was for good. Um, and then, you know, a year later, Jackie Robinson integrates Major League Baseball. And even that story is connected uh, to Kenny Washington because um, Branch Rickey, who signed uh, Jackie Robinson to the Dodgers a year after Kenny Washington first played, um, wanted to integrate pro baseball. And he saw how, now this is where Marion Motley and Bill Willis come in, he saw how Motley and Willis played and played tough, uh, and there were no problems in, in the games that they played. And Branch Rickey was from Ohio, and he saw that, and he realized, you know what, I think we can do this in baseball. And it really gave him a lot of motivation to go ahead and sign Jackie Robinson. Um, so, so, so these stories are all interconnected, and, it, and it's a fascinating time. And, and but a time that was largely forgotten, uh, as far as the football players are concerned. Very true, Bob. And uh, speaking of Bob Glaber tonight uh, from Newsday about uh, his new project with Keyshawn Johnson, you can, you can find it on Amazon. It's it's called uh, the Forgotten First about breaking the color barrier in the NFL. And, and nobody knows, Bob, that uh, Branch Rickey was influenced at all by by the play of those guys, by the appearance of them in the NFL. That's not included in any story, and th- that's what the book depicts. Yeah. You know, there was um, – we came across um, a tidbit that I found fascinating, and certainly Keyshawn did, is that Marion Motley – carried a letter with him um, basically till the day he died in his wallet, and it was from Branch Rickey. And Rickey wrote to him and basically spelled out how um, impressed he was by, the, by, by watching Marion Motley and how much it influenced him that black and white players could compete, not get into, like, fights, um, could compete athletically, um, on a level playing field, if you will, um, and and that gave him great motivation. And Mary Motley treasured that letter. Um, I think Joe Hargan from the Pro Football Hall of Fame always talked to Mary and often talked to Marion about that. Marion himself admitted, you know, he, he talked about how he had that letter and it was one of the proudest things he'd ever had. And And it was very enlightening for Ricky because, you know, there was there was fear of, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you're going to integrate leagues, there was literally fear of fights breaking out if black and white players play against one another. But but Branch Rickey seeing that um, really influenced him and, and, and set the stage in a lot of ways uh, for him to sign Jackie Robinson to the Brooklyn Dodgers in, in 1947, a year after Motley and Willis uh, played for the Browns and, and Washington and Strode for the Rams. Right, he didn't waste any time, Brent Tricky. He went, he went right no. for it the next year, and that's an example, folks, of what you what you'll find in the, this book. I I want to tell you a quick story, Bob. I had the opportunity. I, I was at a card show down. At, I think it was either St. Peter, Tampa, and uh, Otto Graham was there, and they also had Marion mm-hmm. Motley. Now, Marion uh, needed a ride from his hotel to the mall where the, where the uh, card show was, so they asked me to go get him. So I hop in my car, my rent-a-car, and head over to the hotel, find Marion, get him into the car, and uh, we start heading over to the card show. And uh, s- such fascinating stories. Uh, what a gentleman he was, and uh, very soft-spoken. And uh, the chemistry between that he developed with Otto Graham was really legendary, wasn't it? 
It really was. Um, and they got along so well. And that was one thing that, you know, Paul Brown, Paul Brown was a legendary coach, a Hall of Fame coach, known mostly for his brilliant schemes and strategy and motivation, you know, to a large degree. He was very successful at Maslon, Washington High School in Maslon, mm-hmm. Ohio, one of the great college coach, uh, high school coaches of all time. Uh, did a terrific job at uh, Ohio State, then actually enlisted in the Navy, coached at the Great Lakes Naval um, Station, and then he and then he formed the Cleveland Browns of the All American Football Conference, and and he had used black players throughout his entire career and thought nothing of it. He's just like these guys are players. I want I want the best players, and he he, he found that you know he he knew he wanted to sign uh, Motley and Willis. Um, and he signed other black players over time. Um, but one of the byproducts of having black players on the same team, you know, and there, there were some issues. Now, Branch Rickey sees the games and they can play and they get through it. But, but on the, on the field of play, there's yelling and screaming and there's some physical stuff going on. And in the very first game that they played against the Chicago Rockets, um, some of the Rockets players were taking liberties with both Motley and Willis. And what happened was, the white players on the Browns came to the defense of Willis and Motley. And as a result, that team grew very, very close together. And the white players kind of understood that, you know what, there's no reason to fear black people or black players. These are my teammates, and I'm going to defend them. So, you know, football is a great, you know, crucible for that kind of thing. Um, And Otto Graham in particular grew very, very close to, to Willis and particularly Motley because Motley blocked a lot for Graham and saved his hide on a number of occasions. He was one of the great blocking fullbacks in addition to a great runner. And uh, they were very, very close. And I think that's another indication. Now, I've covered football for a long time. And, you know, there, there's no better example of people from diverse backgrounds working together for a common goal, and that's to win. Mm-hmm. Um, it's It's part of their daily existence and you know it's it's different um than perhaps the country would reflect it's a a more divided country but you go into an nfl locker room and they are all pointed in the same direction and that's to try to win they don't always win but they do have a brotherhood and and it's pretty special and i think in a lot of ways that brotherhood started um, with that cleveland browns team and, and the rams as well because they grew very close in fact Bob Waterfield, the, the uh, Rams quarterback, was very, very close to Kenny Washington in particular and looked at him as a, as, as a brother. You know, Waterfield also played at UCLA, and um, they were very close. And he was, in fact, a pallbearer at uh, Kenny Washington's funeral. Interesting. More interesting points uh, that are brought out by Bob Clauber, uh the great NFL writer, in his book, along with Keyshawn Johnson, The Forgotten First, and uh, we talk a lot, Bob, about uh, threats made to Jackie Robinson, threats made to Hank Aaron when he's when he's chasing Babe Ruth. There were death threats against these guys too, and no one no one knows about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there were there were specific death threats leveled against written in letters against Motley and Willis in advance of their first game. In Miami, um, they played the Miami Seahawks, and this was the 1946 season. So, 
So Brown gets a hold of these letters that are threatening, you know, their threats to kill both of those players because at that time, you know, Miami today is considered a very um, progressive city, inclusive. It's very diverse and, and accepting. But back then, it was part of the Deep South. And literally, black players were not allowed to play against white players in the state of Florida. It sounds crazy now, but mm-hmm. that was the rule. And um, so, so Paul Brown gets these gets to hold these death threats um, against two of his players, and he kept them home. He, he paid them, um, and he and he kept them home. He didn't he didn't tell them why until after the season. And um, they they were also called names all the time. Um, you know, the, the N word was used multiple times against them. Um, Bill Willis described uh, a game where one of the Los Angeles players had um, not like razor blades in his uh, in his uh, arm padding oh, that man. you know he would try to hit Willis with. Yeah. So you know there were multiple instances where they found you know they fought against this, and they didn't really say anything because at that time, part of the part of the issue was that they they couldn't fight back. Um, they wanted to fight back, but they could. If they did, then the fear was that people would say, well, you see, they can't get along. You know, Branch Rickey might say, oh, it's not time yet right. for Jackie Robinson. But they mm-hmm. took it, and they dealt with it. Um, and, and, you know, but the players did come to their defense. And still, it was, it was a very challenging time. As I said, I loved a lot of the facts brought out in, in the book, Bob. Tell us your favorite portion of the book that, that you really enjoyed writing and gives, gives you a sense of pride to uh, have that story told. Well, I would say overall it was, it was the presentation, believe it or not, and, and he, he had the, few, the, the least football influence, um, but he had a lot of cultural influence, and that's the story of Woody Strode. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Kenny Washington was a great athlete, All-America player, and um, – he was terrific. Um, Bill Willis and Mary Motley, Hall of Fame players with the Cleveland Browns. Now, Strode was kind of little known as a football player. He only played a year for the Rams. He got cut, he believes, because he was married to a Hawaiian woman, which was considered um, intermarriage at that time. And he felt that the team did not want that, and they released him. But he, he went on to an incredible career, like a great American life. And... Woody went to Canada to play with the CFL's Calgary Stampeders. And in 1948, they had the, the uh, CFL's only unbeaten season, which today stands. Um, and then he uh, went into a pro wrestling career and then became an actor. And he'd, he'd been in Spartacus. He was in a famous fight scene with Kirk Douglas where Kirk Douglas fought him to the death. And, um, you know, Woody Strode was, was killed in the movie. That was Woody. Uh, that was Woody. Oh man, yeah, yeah I know. I, yeah. Everybody knows that scene, Bob. That, yeah. They're they're in the arena, and yeah. uh, Kirk Douglas has to fight the, this huge guy, and I think he had a spear and a net he was yep. using as yep. a weapon. Yep. Yeah, okay. Yep. I did not know That's that. Woody there's there's That's another Woody fact, Strode. folks. <laughs> yeah, and there's another thing now. Now Woody Strode went on to make many many movies. He worked for fifty years in the movie industry. And he made a lot of westerns, um, and they filmed a lot of them over in Italy, and they were nicknamed spaghetti westerns. Right. Um, he made one western with Joe Namath. Um, we interviewed Joe Namath for the book, and he remembered working with Woody Strode. 
Um, so, so Woody worked until he was just about 80. Um, he, he developed cancer, um, and, and, and he died um, fairly quickly. And, and the year after he died, the movie Toy Story, the first Toy Story movie came out, right? Mm-hmm. So you got Buzz Lightyear. Yeah. And you got Woody Pride. Where's the hat? A cowboy hat? Well, Woody Pride is named after Woody Strode. The Woody oh, is wow. for after Woody Strode <laughs> in, a, in a, a tribute to a really long, hardworking actor who probably didn't get the kind of roles that he probably should have because Hollywood itself um, was was battling against battling integration. You know, it was even today. You know, it's hard hard sometimes for black actors to get prominent roles and enough leading roles. But back then. You know, it was it was almost unheard of, but he persevered and he he played a lot of roles over the years. Another example of a guy that made it is Jim Brown. Bob. Yeah, with, now Brown. Yeah, Brown. You know, Brown acted. And yeah. He, and he had a number of you know prominent roles. It's a little different. You know, he was a Hall of Fame player, but right. he retired. Yeah. <laughs> you know, went into acting. Um, but but Strode. I don't think they ever made any movies together. Um, but. Uh, Strode, I mean, Strode acted with John Wayne. Um, he, he was a favorite of director John Ford. Uh, John Ford, um, when he passed away, Woody Strode, uh, like took care of him and was a companion for him for, for many, many months when, when, uh, uh, Ford was, was, was dying. Interesting. Yeah, another piece of information from Bob Glaber and Keith Sean Johnson's book, The Forgotten First. Uh, as I said, folks, the, the book, uh, it parallels Jackie Robinson's, uh, story, uh, as an iconic piece of sports history, but it really brings out the facts that are not known. And I guarantee you, you guys out there do not know the, these players who broke the color barrier in the NFL. And I believe it, it's, uh, time definitely to, to learn about these people and to, to, uh, study it. And to know it, as as we know all the other records in sports, uh, and this book does a tremendous job of that. Thank you, I appreciate it. Yeah, great, great job, Bob. And uh, uh, Keyshawn, how was it working with him? Uh, uh, well, he's a media guy now. Yeah, he was yeah. Great. He's like Keyshawn knows. Um, he's a very savvy guy, and he saw this as a meaningful project, and extremely involved in it and with the concept with the layout with the you know the the execution of it and it was it was great you know if you if you need to run stuff past him and you know in any form he he was always there and we i I found it to be a really great partnership and hopefully you know he he's he's passionate about it because you know he he is a little upset that he didn't know about these players when he was growing up Mm -hmm. especially because Two of them were were from his town, and he, you know, and and we were talking in that first conversation. I said, you know, Keyshawn, they played a zero zero tie. Kenny Washington walks off the field to a hero's exit. It's the same field you walked off in 1995, and a year later, you're the number one overall pick, and that's exactly 50 years after the color barrier was broken in pro football, and that was really impactful for him and you know it, it got him kind of fired up and then once we kind of learned about you know just how 
how owners just did not want black players in the NFL for for many years until it was basically forced upon them and they ultimately relented and then the beginning of you know important reintegration occurs and and over time black players get a fair chance to the point now where you know football is looked at like if you can play the if the if you're the best player regardless of your race you're going to play and you're going to get the job mm-hmm. and that's the way it should be it should be um uh, it's not it's not the democracy but it's a meritocracy that's that's what it should be you know you right. you earn the job based on the merits of your play and that's generally what it is in all sports but especially in football Keyshawn probably just said give me the damn book right bob is that- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> oh man yeah i missed him when he left the jets but he went to my second favorite team he won the super bowl down there so uh, Keyshawn holds a special place for me. Well, Bob, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to graciously be with us in short notice. The book again, folks, The Forgotten First, Kenny Washington, Woody Strode, Marion Motley, Bill Willis, and The Breaking of the NFL Color Barrier. Where can folks pick it up, Bob? Uh, get it at your favorite bookstore, online. Mm-hmm. Uh, wherever you buy books and however you buy books. There we go. Thanks for, thanks for having me though. Thanks again, Bob. All the best. That, that's Bob Glaber, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in the great former Islander goalie, Chico Resch. Stay with us, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, folks, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. We are in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. On the way to the station tonight, I saw they have a carnival uh, at the Merrick, uh, not at the Merrick, at the Belmore train station, the parking lot. Brian and I are going to head over there when the show's finished and shoot those clowns in the mouth with uh, the water pistols to blow up the balloons, right, Brian? Yeah. <laughs> we're we're going to have some fun, go on the Tilt-A-Whirl uh, and, and enjoy ourselves. I think there's a weight limit on there, though, so I may have a problem. But let's talk about baseball season quick. All right, that's good. That was enough. Uh, great difference. Uh, disappointment. Expected to go further. The New York Mets wait to see where the Yankees end up. Uh, the 30-30 on the 86 Mets. Entertaining. Very entertaining. And uh, we'll try to get a few of those guys back on the show in the coming weeks. I'd like to uh, hear what uh, Lenny Dykstra has to say. And I'm sure Brian will have the... Uh, the cutout key, re- ready to go. The Jets, well, they've been killing me since 1969. But right now we're going to keep the memories rolling along. Our next guest, ho- ice hockey goalie and television sportscaster. He played in the NHL from 1973 to 1987. 
He won a Stanley Cup, of course, with the New York Islanders in 79 and 80. He served as the color commentator for the New Jersey Devils on MSG and MSG+. It's an honor and a pleasure to welcome into the show tonight Chico Rush. Chico, good evening. Uh, it sounds like that carnival is going to be fun. I, I want you to, I want you to follow through. People are going to wonder: Did he really ride the tilt the world? All right, yeah, we'll get we'll get some pictures. That's for sure. Okay. I I got to I got okay. to get some cotton candy and all, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, win a prize that's worth like one cent after you spent twenty to play the game. Uh, yeah, <laughs> right, Brian. Yeah. We'll 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 chronicle it for you, Chico. Don't worry. Okay. Now you were bo- you were born in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. One of my favorite names in the world. What's life like in Moose Jaw? Uh, it's about as as interesting as it gets. It's a nice little town, about forty thousand. Mm-hmm. Has a rich history. Al Capone and some of the gangsters used to go up there. Um, Moose Jaw in the thirties was. Pretty lawless. Um, wow. Okay. And so people would go up there. People don't realize it. But um, it was a very prominent um, community because it was a train center, grain center. So it was booming in the 30s and 40s. It's not uh, that now. But um, it, it was just a nice, you know, nice little town and had a great name and big moose standing there, you know, <laughs> as its uh, symbol. Sure. Yeah, which would make sense, right? Yeah, that's like great. Like the old joke is, where's Moose Jaw six feet from the moose's butt? <laughs> they always say that. Where's Moose Jaw six feet? Clark Gillies, who's a good friend of mine, and won <laughs> cups with the uh, Islanders. He's also from Moose Jaw. Yeah, I think Clark and, and I discussed yeah. that one time. Yeah. Yeah, and he and we all know that joke. Where's Moose Jaw? <laughs> so, yeah, it, it, it's a nice town. Cold, cold in the winter. Oh, yeah. Yeah, now, you know people don't realize that that howling wind. Oh no! You know, it just yeah. howls. Now, uh, now when you were a day. kid growing up in Moose Jaw, Chico, who were your sports teams and who were your guys, uh, your, your favorite players, your stars when you were a kid? Well, you know everybody loved hockey, and the junior players were, were very popular. And I mean, I love the Chicago Blackhawks. I don't know why. Maybe because the goalie Glenn Hall had the same name as me. You know how? Right. Yeah. But I love the jerseys. They were barber pole jerseys, and um, I just love the Chicago Blackhawks. It was like, where is Chicago? I mean, I had no clue. It, it just was a romantic. The whole thing was romantic. So I didn't like Toronto, and I didn't like Montreal because you heard about them all the time. Yeah. And so I love the American teams because, you know, we didn't get any games on TV except in the playoffs. And I often wonder what. What they're like, you know, kids didn't travel much back in the 50s and 60s, so I, I never got around. So that was my, my favorite team, and I liked, I liked the, the Pittsburgh Pirates. Okay. You know? Yeah. I never liked the Yankees. Atta boy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, they were just so good. You know what I mean? When Sort of like the uh, Patriots from a few years ago. You just got tired of them. It's like winning, rooting, winning, winning, rooting so. for U.S. Steel. Right, Chico? That's what it's like. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. So um, those were my teams. And then the only thing about the NFL, uh, the Giants um, were a team then. But every Sunday at 12 o'clock, I still remember, they had NFL football games, but they were a week late. 
they would tape them the Sunday before, ah, okay. and then we would get to watch them. And the Canadian Football League was very popular, and we were into that. But I remember Jimmy Brown. I love the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I like the Giants too. Marjoleski. I mean, I can still remember some of these names. I got to meet Sam Huff. Sam Huff. Remember him? Yeah. Great New Yorker, and uh, so. You know, those were the teams that, that I, I liked. And, um, you know, you'd get the newspaper every night and just hope that there was some write-up. I mean, nothing was announced on TV, Canadian TV. Heck, we only had one station and uh, no, no, obviously, um, Internet or anything. Right. Nothing. You know, so America back then was uh, a mystic place. It was mysterious. I. I liked uh, the states. We used to go to Minot, North Dakota. That was the only city uh, in the states we'd go to. But I don't know. It just was bigger than life. And, you know, I always loved the United States. And when I first went there was when um, I went to the University of Minnesota, Duluth, mm-hmm. like the college. But that was just, uh, you know, in um, northern, like, north-central Minnesota. So, But when I went to New York that first time, Oh my! You, you have no idea. Like <laughs> coming from a little town to see New York City. Now, now it's no big deal because you see it on movies and TV and all that. But right, when... it was a it, it was a fun time to be a kid because everything was bigger than life and exciting and you know. And hockey was the center central uh, focus in my life because I really didn't. Couldn't do much else. I mean, I was okay in school. I tried, but I just didn't have a great memory. And, and you know, in school back and then, it was all memorization. But the only thing I could do was I could play goal. Mm-hmm. And so I just was, that was my source of uh, confidence. And I, I never thought I'd ever play in the NHL or anything like that. Kid didn't dream of that then. But, you know, it was it was. I have no no bad memories of growing up as a kid in Moose Jaw uh, or Regina or any of those places. So nice. Um, yeah, kind of. Li- I, I kind of lived the dream. You Still, did. And then one day I find myself on Nassau Coliseum on Long Island. Right. That I think the, the date, Chico, February third, nineteen seventy four, folks, against a team called the California Golden Seals. Now these guys were. Uh, green and gold, but they wore yeah. white skates like Pe- Peggy Fleming, and uh, yeah. right, Chico. And yeah. that, that was your first game. You, you, do you have any memories of your first start? Well, the minor league team for the Islanders had moved from New Haven to Fort Worth, Texas. And wow! So I, I didn't know, except I knew about those white skates and those green uniforms. But uh, I got a call from Bill Torrey, and he said, "Well, we're going to call you up for a couple games." And we're going to be on the West Coast, which is really close to Fort Worth. So I went there, and Al Arbor told me I was going to play. And, you know, that franchise was had probably the least interest from their fans of any team. So my first game there, there was maybe 6,000 yeah. fans, six, seven, and I lost 3-1. to one And, you know, it was fun. I just remember I made a great save. I don't know if it was against Reggie Leach or somebody. Um, but then I thought, oh, geez, I didn't really impress them. I'm going home. And then they told me, we're going to take you back to Long Island. And I had never really, 
I guess I had seen the arena, but I'd never played in it. And we were playing the Minnesota North Stars. Right. A few uh-uh. days later, I got to play that game and we won. And, you know, the rest was kind of history, but. Yeah, that, that's it. You got a good memory, Chico. Yeah, you remembered all that stuff. Um, how did you feel when uh, they decided to leave the Coliseum? I know you weren't with the Islanders then, but uh, tell us about the the great days and uh, the crowds at the Coliseum uh, during the Stanley Cup year, the first one. Well, you, you know, Bill, what happened was, I know the first year team wasn't very good. I'm playing in the minor league. Mm-hmm. Second year, I'm still in the minor leagues, but that's when I played those two games. So the game I played against the North Stars that night, it was nice. You know, like maybe 8,000, nothing earth-shattering. But then we came back the next year, and we had gotten, uh, like, Clark Gillies, Bobby Bourne, Denny was there, Billy Harris. I mean, Gary Howitt, Bobby Nystrom. And, you know, hockey was tough back then, and fans loved it. And I got to tell you, in the fall of that year, you know, the fan attitude was pretty much what it had been. You know, yeah, nice team. Uh, I might follow them. Yeah. And we started winning, I would say, around Thanksgiving. I remember the first save of that year. I stopped Bobby Orr. It was a nothing shot. It was from the blue line. But I remember thinking, I just stopped Bobby Orr, and maybe I can play yeah. in the NHL. But it was a you could have stopped it. it it was so insignificant, <laughs> except it was Bobby Orr. But anyway. Right. So then we're yeah. throwing, and we got Al Arbor, great coach. And then we start not only winning, but we start, like, flyers would come in, try to intimidate us, Bruins. We started to pound back. And I got to tell you, by after Christmas, that building started to fill. And there was a feeling of an, an excitement that... The fans came to rock, and we did too. I gotta tell you, Bill, those from, you know, like I say, the first of the year on, you couldn't wait to play a game. Cause we felt we could beat anybody, and I just painted my mask. I had this, that new Long Island right. painted mask. Yep. And, and we were winning, and I mean, it was, it, it was, it was magical. And the fans were so loyal, and you know what the parking lot's like. And then, yeah. We just started to win. And then we started to beat the Rangers a few times, and that's when the fans really said, hey, we're with you. When when that rivalry, the rivalry against the Rangers, uh, when that started up, Chico, that, that was heavy duty. I mean, uh, e- even these days it is, but back then they, they really got into it, and there was, there was some, some real trouble in the stands when the Rangers came in. Oh, well, you know, we had, you know, mounted horsemen, policemen outside the garden there because yeah. after we started beating them, the fans would uh, just be there and yelling and screaming. I mean, I, New York Ranger fans are fine. They, they, they weren't really violent, but it was still, it was still, um, such a, an intense, like, I mean, I played college hockey and that was that a nice rivalry in the minor league. But the New York Islanders, who were they? Who were their fans? Why are they getting so rambunctious? But it just mushroomed yeah. and blossomed. And it was the first time that everyone else who couldn't stand the Rangers had somebody to cheer for that could beat them. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, when we beat the Rangers, I still remember my wife was on the bus. The girls came in. We're playing the Rangers that first year of the playoffs. 
and we beat them in the uh, in the deciding game in Madison Square Garden. So I mean, Al Arbor and Bill Torrey were the greatest guys. Oh, they treated us well, and they, they just did things right. So they said, "Hey, you know, if, if your wife's here at the games, they can come on the bus and they can ride home with you to Long Island." Mm-hmm. So we're there, and somebody comes on, and it's not one of our guys, and it's Eddie Jockerman. The great Ranger goalie yeah. who had just oh, lost man. the game. And he came on and said, hey, you know, you guys are a special team. I really want to wish you the best. Congratulations. And my wife still talks about it today, how Eddie Jockerman came on that bus and congratulated, you know, the Islanders. And we used to say as players we hated the Rangers. But we didn't really hate them, but we had to kind of say it. We hated the Flyers. Oh, oh yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, we hated the Flyers because they were just a mob of, of a mob trying to, you know. The Broad Street Bullies. Yeah. Yeah, they were, and they, and it worked for them. They would remember, Bill, no third man in. So if I'm, be, if, if, well, I remember Clark Gillies pounding Dave Schultz. Oh, yeah. And there's no <laughs> third man in, and Flyers, two Flyers guy jumped them, which was our fault. We should have been. We should have known what they were going to do, but um, so it was. We were the only team. I honestly, and I talked to Flyers. We were the only team that they knew we could stand up to them. Yeah. The Bruins were pretty tough too, but um, those Flyers were just. Oh, I couldn't. Oh, I still get my blood boiling, Bill. When <laughs> yeah. I think of Bobby Clark and. Oh yeah. Oh. But, and Moose um, Moose Dupont, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> Moose Dupont, yeah, good guy. We were working together, um, but uh, I just remember one game in the. Uh, it was that first year, and and they thought, well, we're going to have to set these guys straight. <laughs> and I can still remember the crowd just going bonkers from start to finish, and you could charge. I remember Gary Howe would run across the ice and just blow some player flyer apart and then Bobby Knight would hammer somebody and you know they had a few guys that would fight but they never they never won or dominated no yeah I mean uh, the, you're right the Gary Howitt was it was a small guy but you didn't want to mess with Gary Howitt he was tough and that Clark Gillies tells a story Chico we got Chico Resch with us tonight on the program that he got into it with Eddie Hospidar from uh, f- from the Flyers, and he went to see him in the hospital. He put him in the hospital, and he goes, I'm looking f- for a guy that looks like Ed Hospidor, because <laughs> his face was rearranged by by Jethro. <laughs> yeah, I remember that fight. Yeah, poor Eddie Hospidor, a good guy. He and I were game teammates, but he just didn't have the heart. But yeah. Clark, he didn't either. I remember when we were in the playoffs against Boston, the year we won the Cup, and Clarkie and Terry O'Reilly are going at it. Right. Every game. So before the game at home, I don't know if it was a game we eliminated him. They only won one game, but whatever it was, Clarkie's in the bathroom there and he's dry heaving. I said, Clarkie, what, what, what's going on? You got the flu? He says, no. He says, I know I got to fight. I got to fight O'Reilly again tonight. Clarkie <laughs> did not like that. And right, yeah. Those guys, yeah. You know, some guys did, but even Dave Schultz in his book later, fans thought it was just fun in games like world wrestling, but, I mean, these guys threw punches for keeps, and um, 
And so, like you say, Gary Howitt, you know, when he started, which which was great, they changed the rule. But when we started uh, and guys didn't have helmets, you could pull hair. Oh, like, man. So Gary would say, yeah, the guy could be 6'2", but I'm grabbing his hair and pulling him down to 5'8", my height, <laughs> and then I'm going to bop him. And that's what Gary would do. He and Daryl Sittler had a fight. There's a they Hall of Famer, yeah. hit the ice. Finally hit the ice, Bill, and still throwing punches on their knees. They were both tough. And I don't know why. People say, why do you fight so much? I said, hmm, I really don't know. We didn't make much money, those guys. Yeah. And we didn't really hate each other. I guess because, you know, the coaches said you had to. The prevailing uh, peer pressure was to be tough and fight. You know, it was that time period. Mm-hmm. And um, so hockey had that crazy reputation, but... Yeah, that, the that's Islanders, for sure. Oh, I got to tell you, we go somewhere. You go into a deli for the first time, and people say, "You're Chico Resch. You're with the Islanders." And that was after we that first Stanley, uh, the first playoffs. Yeah, I didn't even know what delis were. It was just so exciting. <laughs> people would know. They'd yell at you, really. But anyway, I love Long Island. It's it's got a special, special spot because my, you know, my daughter basically was kind of born and raised there uh-huh. and we loved it and great friends and well they got a, a new arena a new arena coming in uh for the start of next year chico we're, yeah, we're finally nice. going to get I, a new home yeah we we did a virtual tour last spring uh lou lamarilla was on and we we went through the dressing room and all the uh i think there's four major bar restaurants i mean they nailed it yeah, you know, I know they spent a lot of money. They nailed it, and you know they tried to keep the ceiling lower and try to keep the stands a little bit more on a slant, like the old Coliseum. Um, so they tried to create the ambiance. Um, and boy, the the training center down below the ice surface for the team, you mm-hmm. know, shoot pucks and do extra stuff down there is really. Like no other rink, and no, it's going to um, be great. Going to be great. Yeah, and Ch- especially if they win. Exactly. You know? That's what. That's the, that's the main thing, Chico. Chico Rush with He's us up. tonight on the program. I do. I want to ask you about Billy Smith, Chico. You were the goalie. They bring in Billy Smith. How did you feel about that? Oh, Smitty and I were really good friends. Okay, Smitty, great. Yeah, no, he's one of my. He's one of my best. But but L. Arbor. Al Arbor was a master. He never created a rivalry between us. He would say, no, two number ones. You know, we're going to split. But, you know, if you get hot, Chico, you might play three, four games. But, Billy, you'll get back in there. And if you win, you and at the end of the year, within a game or two, Al just knew. So our wives were friends. Debbie and Diane were friends. Uh, and Billy was, I'll say this, he is, I don't know, you know, athletes in other sports. I, I don't know. There's, you know, there's guys like uh, quirky guys I know, but but Smitty was one of the most unusual guys. But if you got to know him and you got you got to understand, like this is the way I function. You know, he would kind of say he didn't say it like that, but you realize, don't don't mess with certain things, yeah. Billy, and you're fine. Be loyal. He'll be loyal. Um, <laughs> I mean. He and I were the best, but obviously the stories about Billy are true. Yeah. He had it. 
chip on his shoulder that, and they kind of teach us that way that he'd just say, hey, they're trying to steal money out of my pocket. They're trying to prevent me from reaching the goal I want. He says, and that's not going to happen. And right. he yeah. would just do whatever it took, Bill. And some of it was, well, today it would be suspendable. And oh, yeah. Like, today you can't do anything. So somebody would end up with uh, a mouthful of coho uh, stick, right, from, from Billy. <laughs> oh, oh, he was. He was sneaky with that butt end and, you know, and, and I love Billy. I mean, sometimes I thought Billy, that guy there, you just, you just hammered. He, he's not a bad guy. I mean, I didn't mind. One time I said to him, you know, that Bobby Clark, you know, he runs around. He never fights. He's always like trying to get things going and he's, I'll get him tonight. Smitty and I would talk like that. I said, so right at the end of the second period down at the old, Visitors in there, because it was the second period, about maybe 15 seconds left. Somebody dumps the puck in. And Smitty gets it. If you're looking at the goal, to the right of the goal, Smitty grabs the puck. And he stands there and waits. (laughs) And Bobby Clark is going to come in forechecking like he always did. And Smitty's waiting for him. Billy, he took that puck. And when Clarky got about, oh, you know, like three strides away, he leaned back. He shot that puck at Bobby Clark and followed through with his stick. And Clarky hits the ice, right? And so then, eh, second period's over. All the Flyers come off the bench. We come off the bench. And they think they're going to get Smitty. <laughs> Smitty went against the boards and put his stick up and said, okay. Who wants some coho? Yeah. <laughs> You've never seen so much snow stop. Billy, they all put the brakes on because they knew, because he had done it to some of them. He, You know, some people say, oh, cut your eyes out. No, you're not going to cut their eyes out. You're just making a ridiculous statement. But with Smitty, if he threatened you, very well it could happen. Yeah. So I remember Smitty's there against the backboards with his stick. Flyers aren't doing anything. Well, we're not doing anything because, you know, he's our team. We're watching. And it's like a bizarre, it's a bizarre moment where we're just standing there. And I remember Jimmy Watson. He was a young kid, Joey Watson's brother. Mm-hmm. And he was a nice guy. But it's just so funny. The Flyers would do stuff and it would be like, oh, yeah, that's within the uh, parameters of the game. And Somebody else would do it. No, you're a cheap shot. So Jimmy didn't understand, and he said to Smitty, because there's, there's nothing going on. We're just standing there by each other, and it's really bizarre. And he said, Smitty, don't you feel bad? You could have taken Bobby's Clark's eye out. Smitty says, Jimmy, I was standing next to Jimmy. He said, I feel terrible. He said, because I didn't take his eye out. <laughs> and Jimmy... Jimmy looks at me, Chico, Chico, he's crazy. Said, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you don't want to mess with him, Jimmy. No. But, no, and then we just kind of broke up because they weren't going to do anything. And, you know, like Smitty just shut it all down. But, like I say, he's I consider him one of my best friends from hockey, you know. And um, I got to yeah. tell you, Billy, you know, there, there's, there's regular season goalies that are better than Smitty. I, I get that. But there's only 
three goalies that won four straight cups, Jacques Plante, Kenny Dryden, and Billy Smith. That's some company. And I will say yeah. this. If I had, like, Smitty, he, he didn't, like, he didn't, he's not like, he wasn't like a trained goalie. Like, a lot of guys go to school and they say, okay, on the blocker, I gotta do the da 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 da. Smitty just did everything right. He, it wasn't like he thought about it. He was just this natural guy. When he hit the ice, pucks didn't go under him. They didn't go through him. He knew how to, you know, play angles. It just came to him. So I'm saying, if I had to pick one goalie to say, okay, who are you going to pick to be your goalie through the Stanley Cup playoffs? I got to tell you, I didn't see Jacques Plante play, but for me, I would pick Smitty. I'm just saying, like yeah. that guy was a gamer. Woof. So great story, great Chico. We got to run. Uh, will you come back and talk to us again? I might. I don't know. You know, <laughs> I'm not going to make any. Pro- and you know what? If, if there's some really exciting pictures of you at that carnival, all right, well, yeah, say, okay, maybe I'll do it. I got gotcha. you. All right, okay. Chico Rest, it's been an honor and a pleasure. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to be with us. And I thank Russell thank for you, getting Billy. us together. You take care, Chico. Oh, it's always a pleasure. Chico. Always a pleasure. Thanks, guys. That's Chico Resch, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests, Bob Glauber and Chico Resch, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you for joining us. See you next Sunday evening, October 3rd, with author Tony Castro and former Islander Dave Scatchard. We're on the radio then. Look out, folks. Rob's coming up next. Be, uh, t- till then, we see you again. Be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.